Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Thank you for seeing me, Senator Wolf. I appreciate your willingness to consider the concerns of my client, Monstrasso, the world's largest agribusiness company. Seems like it would be bad manners to say no. What did you guys give me for my last campaign? Four million dollars? Shh, Senator, a lot of that was dark money. It's kind of our little secret. Well, I don't care what anybody says. As far as I'm concerned, you own my behind. You paid for it. You know, that's the American way. Could you lower your voice, Senator? Hell no. I'm proud that you think enough of me to give me all that cash. I'm glad you feel that way, Senator. What we'd like now is a law that makes it impossible to stop the use of genetically modified seeds in federal court, no matter what new evidence about them emerges. I don't know. It seems like it would take a lot of time and brain work to write a law like that. Oh, no, Senator. We've already written the law. Here's the language, just the way we want it. Well, son, that is a whole different lizard. There's only one thing left to do before we go get you that law. You see this paper bag? You just fill that bad boy up with hundreds right up to where the pencil mark is, and we are off to the races. Senator, no. That's actually the only thing we're not allowed to do. We have so many completely legal ways of taking care of you. I'm sure you do, Sonny, and we can talk about those right after you fill the bag. Come on now. Don't be shy. Trick or treat. You don't get it, do you? We're living in the golden age of corruption. We can do anything, and the feds can't touch us. Now, put that bag away, and let us bribe you like civilized modern people. Didn't realize you were such an old stick in the mud, son. All right, then maybe we should all listen to this radio show about corruption. And now he got bribed in the teapot dome scandal, but he only got a teapot. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I didn't think it was so bad just taking a teapot. Actually, the teapot dome uh, scandal had nothing to do with teapots. Uh, I just, just So I don't get historically oriented emails sent to me. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about corruption today. This is, uh, for me, as I, I said earlier, a kind of a defining issue. I mean... Uh, for most of my adult life. It's been a very, very pressing concern here in Connecticut. Uh, we've had a lot of corruption cases, so much so that we even got a very unpleasant nickname of Corrupticuts sort of during the 90s and uh, beginning part of this century. So uh, I was excited to hear that the U.S. Attorney here in Connecticut, uh, Deirdre Daly, has uh, formed a, a special anti-corruption task force. We're going to begin by hearing a little bit about that. And then as we go along today, we're going to talk uh, about the history uh, of uh, corruption and perceptions of corruption uh, here in the United States, how America and Connecticut implicitly rank vis-a-vis other countries in the world. Um, and, and I think sort of specifically, apropos of that introduction, which may paint a darker picture than is warranted, um, how, in fact, recent changes in the law, uh, in case law, affect our ability to control corruption or even perceive corruption or even to agree on what is corruption. Anyway, a lot of things to talk about. We do want to uh, start, though, with uh, U.S. Attorney Deirdre Daly. Her time with us is uh, limited. She's joining us by phone right now. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. Happy to be here. Uh, Tell us about the task force. First of all, what are the components of this task force? So the components are there are agents from the five major federal agencies that are most responsible for corruption in Connecticut. So that would include FBI, Postal, uh, IRS, the Inspector Generals for HUD and HHS. And they're essentially a top-notch 
agent from each of those agencies who are committed to the task force. We also have three prosecutors here over, overseeing the work of the task force. Now, when you make a case for this, when you explain to people why there would be sort of a, a, a dedicated deployment of personnel for this, what's the case you make? Essentially, there's been, as you well know, a persistent problem with corruption in Connecticut. And most recently, over the last few years, we've seen that in a number of arenas. So the time was ripe. Not ripe for a number of reasons. Uh, we want to leverage our resources and our expertise so that we can be most impactful. And at the same time, offer the public a place to call, a place where they'll be confident that their concern will be heard. So we've set up this hotline. It's a 24-7 hotline. Uh, an FBI agent will respond to all calls, and all calls relating to Connecticut will be, will be referred to this task force. So the public can have some confidence that people with expertise and talent will take their concerns seriously. They can also call confidentially, and they can call anonymously. So they need not fear retaliation. Um, this may sound like a stupid question, but how would a person know whether to call or not? I mean, is this kind of a Potter Stewart thing? Uh, if you think you're uh, uh, a witness to or aware of corruption, uh, then you probably are, or at least you should make that call. I mean, what kinds of, uh, of indices could, could you give to people or criteria could you give to people to follow? So our experience is people really know when there's corruption going on. It's not that they don't recognize it as corruption. It's usually that they have some concern or reservation about speaking up about it. But basically our message would be if you have a concern, and often these are people that are working in the public sector, if you think that someone is doing something corrupt, call, make a call, speak up. What's your definition of something corrupt? Well, it's, it's a broad definition, and we've seen it manifest itself in a number of different ways. But essentially, somebody who is taking a personal benefit for themselves rather than uh, protecting the public good. So that's a very generic explanation, and it can manifest itself in a whole lot of ways. But um, theft, uh, embezzlement, um, lack of transparency, manipulation of funds, so um, uh, as we go along here, you're going to move on to the rest of your busy day, and I'm going to be talking with our two other guests about this. But I want to ask you, I mean, to, the, one theory is that some of the recent um, utterances by the Supreme Court have uh, effectively changed, at least uh, at the level of case law, the perception of what corruption is. I mean, Justice Kennedy's uh, definition of corruption is really different from mine, for example. I mean, he, he is effectively saying uh, you have to prove quid. It's got to be quid pro quo. You've got to be taking money and, and doing a specific thing for the money that you're taking. Um, do you, first of all, is that your perception? And is, is that do you feel hamstrung at all by a definition like that one? Well, I think, as you know, we don't write the laws. We just right. enforce them. But the federal government has lots of um, flexibility in how they investigate fraudulent and corrupt activity wire fraud statutes, mail fraud statutes, embezzlement statutes, and the list goes on. So I think a creative, diligent prosecutor um, can navigate around obstacles that may exist 
uh, often criminal cases are based on bad facts, and mm -hmm. it's those facts that we present in court, and essentially it's those facts that ultimately lead to convictions. So you're saying there are a lot of statutes here, I mean, just in the same sense, they got Capone on tax evasion. There are a lot of, of statutes that can be used to define certain acts that you and I philosophically might understand as corruption. Exactly. Do you also, I mean, so one reason that you might be a little bit disheartened would be the narrowness of, of what the Supreme Court said um, uh, in Citizens United and, and in McCutcheon. Um, on the other hand, one thing that I would assume you feel emboldened by, but I'd love to hear you talk about, is that so much of this winds up in the lap of juries, right? Juries are actual people. Some things go to trial anyway. They wind up. And juries do seem to have an ability to connect the dots and say, yes, that's bribery. It, maybe it doesn't exactly, and maybe I can't exactly see the one, one of those lines from dot to dot. But, um, I mean, I'll sort of give you an example, and I, I won't even put names on it and everything, but imagine a case, but this is based on an actual case, which you may even recognize, but imagine a case that's sort of a triangular case. And so I'm a public official. Um, I'm doing some very special things for maybe some big investment companies. They have a consultant who has some kind of uh, nominal but not very obvious connection to me. They pay that consultant $1.5 million. He kicks $750,000 over it to me. So I didn't get any money from the people I was doing the favors for. It's not really clear why this consultant gave me this money. But I mean, a, a jury in a case like that will look at it in many cases and go, okay, that's bribery. I mean, do, do you feel good about the ability of federal juries to, to kind of figure this stuff out? Absolutely, and it's one of the best things about our justice system that the juries are the ones that ultimately make that kind of analysis, that prosecutors, witnesses have an opportunity to present evidence and tell the story as the evidence shows. And the jury then has the opportunity to make the connections based on the evidence that's presented to them. And I think um, at a gut level, often the stories are very clear. And um, that's compelling to juries. It matters to them. The, um, in some of these cases, we're talking to Deirdre Daly right now. She's the U.S. attorney for Connecticut. Um, in some of these cases, uh, as an outsider looking in, uh, and, and at the risk of sounding too much like Detective McNulty from The Wire, I, I do feel as though, boy, you can sort of almost divide the ones up where there was an active wiretap or somebody wearing a wire from the ones where there wasn't. And so, I mean, Joe Gannon goes away for a really long time. Well, was, they had wires, you know, um, the, the Braddock uh, case in, involving the office of the Speaker of the House, Chris Donovan, uh, at a certain point, uh, you had a Ray Susie wearing a wire. Um, how come there aren't wires on all these cases? Are they hard to get? Is it a matter of judicial restraint, or do you restrain yourself in certain cases from getting one? I don't think we restrain ourselves at all. I think that in these white-collar arenas, we bring many of the tools that have traditionally been used in narcotics cases, violent crime cases, organized crime cases, and we're really bringing those tools to the white-collar world, and you read about that all the time. Um, there are certain uh, standards that we have to meet to get a wiretap, um, and I guess this is the time I would also make a plug for people cooperating again, standing up, calling the hotline when they see concerns, because often these cases begin based on that kind of information, someone that agrees to cooperate, someone that might agree to wear a wire if necessary and appropriate. 
Um, one of the reasons, well, first of all, let me ask you this question. Um, do you think Connecticut, Connecticut has a specific problem? I mean, I'm not talking about investigative subpoena. I'll, I'll save that for a second question. But do you, in other words, if you were in Montana or, or uh, I'm trying to pick, or Delaware or Alabama, would you just be starting the same task force because you think these are good ideas, ways of keeping the system as clean as possible? Or did you start this task force because you think Connecticut has an intrinsic problem? So I do think Connecticut can do better and should do better and that the people in this state deserve that. Um, I haven't done an analysis in Montana or anyplace else to see what challenges they face there. So I can't directly answer that question, but I think the time is ripe and appropriate for us to be doing this. Okay, let's talk about investigative subpoena. This is, an infect- uh, this is some, one of the reasons that we hear that there are fewer state-level prosecutions for uh, theft of honest ser- of ser- services or, or whatever we want to call corruption uh, here in Connecticut. Maybe, first of all, you can explain an investigative subpoena and, and then talk about whether you think it's a reason why Connecticut is less able to police this stuff at the state level. Okay, I think generally um, throughout the country, often federal prosecutors are the one that do some of the more complex public corruption work for a whole lot of reasons, including their resources. But to talk a little bit more specifically about Connecticut, Connecticut, and it may be only Connecticut, does not really have a viable, workable grand jury system. So they're not able to even issue something as simple as what you're calling an investigative subpoena for phone records, bank records, which is where you've got to start in this kind of investigation. There are a number of hurdles they have to overcome. They do have something called a one-man grand jury, Mm -hmm. but in order to set up uh, such a system, they're required to show that they have sufficient information to believe that a grand jury investigation will lead to probable cause that a crime has been committed. Um, They also have to show that they have tried other investigative techniques and those either have not worked or they would fail if they were tried. So that all takes time. Um, Often these investigations are very time sensitive and the state is not able to act quickly and in some instances is not able to have a grand jury at all. So there's no question that that frustrates state prosecutors, and this isn't limited to just the public corruption arena. It could come up in any complex case. It could come up in a violent gang case. It could come up in a cold case homicide because they don't have all the tools that we have. All right. Well, uh, Deirdre Daly, we promised you you'd be out by 120. We're going to make good on that uh, promise. But thank you so much for joining us. And perhaps as some of these uh, cases bear fruit, we'll be talking again. Thank you very much. Appreciate being on the show. All right. Good hunting. Uh, And uh, we're going to move on here. Actually, we'll grab a quick break here. I think we'll come back with uh, Noah Rosenblum and uh, John Wallace, uh, our two other guests, on the topic of corruption. We welcome your phone calls, too. I'll give out the phone number when we come back. It's a shame that you got to teach the children. Everything's corrupt. Everything's fucked up. Everything's about a fuck me for 
All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about corruption today uh, here in a state that was at least at one time and maybe still is, for all I know, known to some people as Corruptocut. Uh, we hope to do something about that, uh, but not today. Uh, with us are John Joseph Wallace, a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, uh, and Noah Rosenblum, uh, a Ph.D. student at Columbia and law student at Yale Law School, where he's an associate, where he's an articles editor, excuse me, for the Yale Law Journal. Um, John Joseph Wallace, I'm going to start with you um, and, and ask you a, a, a question similar to the one I asked. Deirdre Daly. Uh, it's sort of it's been argued that post Citizens United and I guess also post McCutcheon that there really does now exist a definition of corruption that is different uh, from maybe the one that most people might, might have intuitively had prior to that. And that Justice, Justice Kennedy in particular used very narrow language to, to talk about what he considered to be corruption. What's your reaction to that statement? Well, I think the way um Miss uh, Daly defined corruption as the personal benefit from a public good is very much in line with how people have defined corruption for quite a while now, which is the public abuse of a, a private public abuse of a public office for private gain. And what Justice Kennedy is talking about is what does it take when you go to court <laughs> to show that that's what's happened? And there has to be a quid pro quo. Um, we saw that in the McConnell, McDonald case in Virginia this year. Um, that there is a legal definition of corruption, and then there's a more general perception of what corruption actually is. And we're concerned that public officials are actually using the government for private gain. And we'd like to be able to construct laws or actually institutions like democratic elections and political parties and political competition to limit that kind of thing. So I, I, there's a distinction that you make between systematic corruption and venal corruption. Explain the distinction that you make. Well, I'm actually an American economic historian, and I work a lot on early 19th century America. And the word corruption was used all the time in early 19th century America. Um, and I thought this would apply to uh, issues today about corruption and good governance. So when I went back and looked at the 19th century, I realized that they were actually talking about something similar to venal corruption, which is um, the, the use of a public office for private gain, uh, that is a breaking of a moral and a legal uh, standard, but that in fact that the, the word corruption went much farther back. Um, Aristotle talks about it. Um, there's a, a Greek a historian of Rome named Polybius who wrote about this in the second century BC. And what he was talking about was the notion that the government itself would be corrupted. The process of how the society works and the government works would be corrupted. Aristotle talked about the one and the few and the many. And Polybius talked about these pure forms of government, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Um, and that they would, the pure forms would work, um, but they tended to be corrupted by the fact that people's interests would seep into politics. So when uh, Machiavelli writes Discourses on Livy, which is a, a book about Rome, he starts out with Polybius and he says, you know, it's inevitable that societies become corrupt. How do we prevent that from happening? And so when the Americans revolted in 1776 and we had declared our independence from Britain, we largely were declaring that the British system was corrupt. Everybody in America thought the British Constitution was the best in the world. We were, after all, part of Britain. But that the way politics and the interaction between politics and economics was working in Britain was corrupting the process. Um, not venally. It wasn't that people were taking bribes, but that the system itself was being corrupted. And so what I call systematic corruption, uh, to separate it from venal corruption, which is this um, use of a public office for private gain, which is really economics corrupting politics, is the other way around. It's when the political system attempts to manipulate economic privileges or economic um, 
benefits in order to build a political co- coalition, and then that coalition um, gets controlled the government process, either through the democracy, as it would be over the last couple hundred years, or by controlling uh, access to power as it would have been earlier. So it, one of the patterns that I've noticed throughout my career as a journalist is that when, often when you have uh, an instance of venal corruption, um, after it's dealt with, which one hopes that it will be, um, then there's a conversation about systematic corruption. I'll give you just an example here from Connecticut. So we had this governor. His name was John Rowland, and he took a lot of stuff. He took things uh, of material value, work on his cottage and all kinds of other gifts uh, and chartered jet flights and stuff like that. And so, and, and in return for, and there was a quid pro quo, in return for that, he gave out contracts, uh, to no-bid contracts to the people who were taking care of him uh, to build uh, public garages and juvenile prisons and stuff like that, uh, and, and, and helped with legislation that the charter jet companies wanted. And so that's sort of, that's what it might would be my understanding of venal corruption. He just wanted, he wanted a lot of stuff. Uh, he set up a system so he could get that stuff and he gave them what they wanted. So after we, after that got dealt with through, first of all, the impeachment process and then uh, the, the criminal, the federal criminal process, there was another conversation that went on here, which is, and you often hear this phrase that it, it's appalling what is done that is illegal, but it's also appalling what is done that is legal. Uh, and, and so the question w- w- sort of was, do we have the right laws on the books right now? Or does this kind of thing happen? Does venal corruption happen because of a more systematic kind of corruption, which is all about companies uh, and big players thinking, well, all I really need to do to own, quote unquote, own this politician is contribute to his campaigns uh, and 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 and, and so here in Connecticut, we tried to address that. I mean, is, is that a, a pattern that's familiar to you? The venal case comes first, then there's an attempt at systematic reform? Well, I think the, the question about systematic corruption, take the case of the governor, would be, does the governor go to corporations and say, look, I'm going to give you a better deal. I'm going to give you some contracts, in return for which you're going to underwrite the creation of a political machine, which will dominate Connecticut politics for the next 20 years. That's systematic corruption. It's the governor manipulating the economy to actually get a political coalition together, to actually change the interests of people. So when they vote, they're voting their interests, <laughs> but the interests have been manipulated by the political system. And that's a little bit different than the company saying, I think I can buy this politician. I can, I can get my you know, one or two representatives in the K- Connecticut Assembly, and then because there's log rolling and deal making, I'm going to get what I want. Um, that's, a, that's really more of still v- venal corruption. I don't think we have as much systematic corruption as, as perhaps we think or worry about in the United States. Because we have so much political competition, we really do get a lot of things where corporations do contribute to individual senators or representatives or legislators. But their ability to actually manipulate the entire system um, is limited by political competition. Um, Noah Rosenblum, do you agree with that argument? First of all, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things to talk about in that argument. The first question is whether I should care how this actually happens. In other words, do I care that political leaders go to business leaders uh, and, and suggest this kind of arrangement? Uh, does it make any difference to me or, or uh, as opposed to business leaders going to political leaders and saying, you know, I'll fund your campaign, but in return for, in return for that, I certainly expect, you know, legislation X, Y, and Z. I mean, should we care about that distinction? And, and is it true that we have less of it than, than maybe people worry about? I think the first thing to do is just to distinguish between the kind of conversation we're having now and the way that the law would approach these issues. We're really here in the realm of thinking about corruption as a concept, as an experience. So with that caveat, I'll say there are definitely a lot of people in legal scholarship who are thinking about it who Colin would say that that's a problem. 
And I think they would try to introduce maybe a third category to go alongside Professor Wallace's. And I'm thinking here of the sort of work that Larry Lessig has done to define a category of dependence corruption, which is something else, right? It's not just about either the economy corrupting politics or politics corrupting the economy, but it's more what Professor Wallace was describing in this older idea of an institution itself becoming corrupt. Um, the way that Lessig defines it is something having an improper dependence. And I think the key insight there is that we have confidence in our government or trust in our government because of the way that it's supposed to realize certain aims. And it's not just about the outcomes. It's actually about the process. And so, I mean, I, I don't I don't have confidence. <laughs> I don't have confidence. And I, I feel that look at the, looking at the Washington level, I, I mean, I'm not as um, confident. I'm going to stay with you for a second, Noah, and then get back to Professor Wallace. But Professor Wallace says, well, because of political competition, it, it, you know, it's not as bad as you might think. But it seems to me there's sort of this essentially permanent government. First of all, uh, people, uh, office holders in Congress with uh, with seats tend not to lose them. Incumbency seems to be very, very safe. And meanwhile, there's this kind of permanent government influencing apparatus that we sometimes call K Street, uh, and then a whole bunch of other apparatuses connected to that, uh, that, that in fact does create something like what you're describing, you know, a system that's corrupt without necessarily the, 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 the necessity of any particular human participant. The system itself is corrupt. Well, I, I think the first thing to say, and, and this totally does echo Professor Wallace, is that it, it could be a hell of a lot worse. And it's been a lot worse in other places. Um, I think in some ways, when we think about the problems with the United States right now, we're, we're, we, we still have a lot of that old Republican political tradition in us, Republican small r back to the founding, an idea that our government should be pure and help us to accomplish certain kinds of virtuous aims. And it's easy for us to see the ways that it fails in living up to that ideal. The kinds of solutions that Professor Wallace proposed or that I sort of heard sort of virtually between there, like boosting political competition are definitely things that political scientists and, and some democratic theorists have been pushing. Um, and that, that might make things better. Um, and there are lots of other reforms out there to try to harness some of the competitive possibilities of American politics to address, um, address these kinds of problems. But, you know, again, we sort of, if we really want to get into the weeds, we might say that we've got two different problems in this kind of culture of, of dependence corruption, right? There's a, a set of systemic issues about the way that we design institutions. And then there are a set of much harder to get a handle on um, questions of mores or values. And if we were going to totally buy into that old Republican political theory, we would want to have both of those conversations. But that virtue value conversation is one that I think is harder for us to have. Um, you know, Professor Wallace, uh, political competitiveness is great uh, if we can get it, although I do feel with the, the state of districting uh, and redistricting in America, we don't have as much of it as we might want. But the other thing that political competitiveness creates is a, a hunger for money. Campaigns run on mo money. The Supreme Court has said that money is speech. It has also said that corporations are people and that people can't be deprived of their speech, so they should be able to give a, pump as much money into campaigns as possible. So in a competitive situation, I need money m more than ever. Uh, and so I, therefore I need my friends, you know, in the banking industry or the chemical industry or the agribusiness in in industry more than ever. I'm more beholden to them after that process. So why isn't that a recipe for corruption? Well, I think um, I'm completely sympathetic with everything you're saying. And I'm not trying to say that venal corruption is not a problem. <laughs> but I want to echo what Noah said that if we look around the world, the United States does really, really well at this compared to the way most places do it. So let me give you an example. Um, it, for most of the 20th century, the, Mexico had a dominant political party, party called the PRI. It was the revolutionary institutionalized politi political party. 
And they had free elections. They voted. People got to vote. They went to the polls. But the pre would go to some cities and say, you know, if you don't deliver the vote for us, we're going to turn your water off. Now, what would happen is, of course, the city would vote for the pre. <laughs> Because they were manipulating the economic interests of the people in such a way as it affected how they voted. Um, what we're concerned about and you're concerned about, and I think it's perfectly acceptable and, and, and important to be concerned about this, is we would really like every person to have an equal voice in influencing what the government does. And we're worried when some voices speak louder than others. We don't like that, um, at least in principle, although we know many people decide to be passive. So the state... Literally, in this case, in America, the states, because there's hardly any national government chartered corporations, creates artificial people. That's the Mitt Romney line um, that are allowed, because of the way the laws support their ability to interact, um, to become fairly large organizations that can speak with the combined voice of their members and the money and the financial power that they represent. And we're concerned about that. We should be concerned about that. Um, but we should also realize that that's actually how democracy works. We're, we're, it's, it's a process that allows many voices to be heard in competition. And we worry about, you know, what happens when one voice gets privileged over another or some category of voices. And so I think, you know, I don't agree with Citizens United or the McCutcheon decision um, on historical reasons as well as current political reasons. Um, I think that allowing corporations to participate in politics is okay, but we maybe want to set some limits on that. But that's a different story than the kind of corruption story I told you about Mexico. Right. Although, and I, I want to come back to that, although I do want to chime in and just say that the only felicitous phrase to emerge from the administration of George W. Bush was the soft bigotry of low expectations. And I would say that you're engaging in, I mean, saying we're not Mexico, we're not Russia, that to me, that's the soft bigotry of <laughs> low expectations. And I don't think you could go to John Madison and say that, say, by the way, uh, Mr. Madison, we, we feel we've succeeded in preserving the, your legacy and the work that the framers did because we don't have a system where a party can say vote for us or we'll shut off your water and we're not controlled by Russian oligarchs. So let's uncork the champagne. We did it. We brought this vision home. I mean, yeah. Zephyr Teachout in her book, as I'm sure you know, makes the argument there's a steady deterioration of that vision that you talked about, that Polybius-infused, Lockean-infused vision of moral leaders uncorrupted uh, personally and also uncorrupted by a system that, you know, really basically slowly <laughs> we've just kind of torn that down over 200 years. Let me give you another example then. Massachusetts, which, as we know, is the cradle of democracy, um, has the oldest constitution continuously enforced in the world, 1780. And they clearly believe in equality and open access. And in Massachusetts, um, if you wanted to start a bank, you had to be a member of the Federalist Party. Um, and by 1811, there were about 20 banks in Massachusetts. And all but one was dominated by the Federalist Party. One of my, I have a graduate student who's now back in China, and he actually went through and he looked at the names of every single banker in the Massachusetts Almanacs that we could find, and he matched them to the members of the Massachusetts State Legislature. And 80% of the bankers in Massachusetts before 1811 had been or would be at some point in their life a state legislator. Now, that's systematically corrupt when the members of one party are the only people that can get access to a bank. That was after James Madison wrote the Federalist Papers and actually while he was president of the United States. Were, did we solve those problems? Yeah, actually we did solve those problems. We moved forward. 
So we're having a conversation a little bit about where to set the bar right now. Rose, Noah Rosenblum, I'd invite you to join that conversation. How do we decide as a country where to set the bar? What are reasonable expectations for non-corrupt government? I mean, I, I guess, I, and this is, it's the, the, the burden of being in law school, right, the desire to perpetually distinguish between sort of what we can do with the law and then what we can do sort of through our society or through our culture. I, I think the, the points that Professor Wallace is making are, are absolutely right. I don't think we, should, we shouldn't undersell some of the major transformations in American government and American society. But you know, the other side, I guess, is to really think that we, we can still hold true to some vision of uh, an engaged citizenry that's keeping our politicians accountable and honest, that goes beyond just um, trying to make sure that the machinery of government isn't, uh, isn't unduly influencing certain aspects of the economy. Um, I, I think there are lots of ways that we can think about how to make that happen, but the continuing uh, vibrancy of the sorts of narratives that Zephyr Teachout tells in her book, right, that shows us that there's something that still resonates with us about those stories. Although, you know, I think we do have to pause for a moment and recognize that the, the, what exactly it will mean to have a Republican political ideal today, which is no longer the 18th century, is like maybe that's the real conversation to have. Um, well, then extend that a little bit, Noah. I mean, uh, say what you mean or, or how you would extend that conversation. Well, so uh, in, 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 a, in a classical Republican polity, it makes a lot of sense to talk about the virtuous engagement of individual citizens because the whole idea of rule is bound up with ruling and being ruled in turn, right? And if you're part of the elite, that's actually not an unreasonable expectation because we've got a class-based society. It's much smaller. Um, the, the whole notion of power and government service is different. Fast forward 200 years and in a polity of you know, 300 million people more, that's clearly not a, a, a viable political ideal, right? So what's the contemporary vision of ruling and being ruled in turn? I think Professor Wallace got to some of that with this point of wanting everybody to have an equal voice or at least some opportunity to participate directly in the process. Um, the role of corporations in that, I have to say, I'm a little bit less concerned than I think Others have been. But, you know, you look at, for example, the state of civics education, right? How many people are actually being taught ways to meaningfully engage with their government? If my education was any indication, not, not so many and not so well. Um, what about other opportunities for actually monitoring or watching what's happening in Congress? We, we talked a little bit about Citizens United, and this does take us back to the law. But there were eight votes at that moment for disclosure requirements, which have never made their way through Congress. But that's something which you know, the law itself is on board with and which does correspond with a certain Republican conception of the people being able to keep tabs on those who are charged with their uh, – those who are entrusted with their power. Um, but what, what both of those have in common is a revitalized civic culture, and that is something that I think we can extend from, you know, from Madison to today. All right. So uh, we've got some calls coming out. I want to get the uh, get those in, and then uh, we have a lot of things also to talk about with the guests. But here's Luther in Glastonbury. Hi, Luther. Hi. You know, we uh, talk a lot about uh, voter turnout, and I just became aware of a report. Two researchers from UConn were part of it uh, that said uh, as uh, corruption goes up, turnout goes down. And I would also assert that that's, you know, the, the human definition of corruption. So if people think there's too much money in politics, whether it's legal or not, you know, that's the kind of thing that turns voters off uh, from voting and participating in democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, let me just uh, throw this to the guest, but uh, as I do, I'll say one of my 
thoughts about corruption, uh, John Wallace, is that you know the ripple effects are incredible. I mean, the, not only do they is it could it can it produce a jaded and non-participatory voter, but everywhere you look, there are effects. I mean, if you have a corrupt system, I mean, a truly venally corrupt uh, government, uh, that means that honest business people can't compete on the same footing as business people who are willing to bribe. Uh, it, it it means all kinds of things. It has all kinds of deep implications. I mean, there's there are penetrating reasons, and I would as- assume you would concur, to really, really not want to have venal corruption. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, and, and then the question is, what works? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what works at limiting venal corruption? Um, and Noah's been talking about the Republican ideas, and I think those are great. That That is a, actually kind of the ideas that the Founding Fathers had. It turned out those ideas weren't enough. Um, so in the 1840s, com- states across the country began moving to things like general incorporation acts that would allow anybody who wanted to to form a business. Before that, most states didn't have those kinds of rules. Um, they began changing kind of rules about public finance, about how states borrowed money and requiring voters to approve borrowing before it happened. Um, more transparency in what the, it, the, the actions and the decisions that government's making were. Um, requiring equality of taxation, which is something that's actually kind of disappeared in the 20th century. There's a bunch of institutional ways that we can ensure that. And I think many of the ways don't operate uh, directly. It's not saying we should have transparent government, so let's pass a law that says the sunlight should come in. What we want to do is have competitive, transparent government because the process works in such a way is that voters know what the government is doing and can pay attention. And I think in that kind of civics lesson way that Noah was talking about, which is really important, you know, make informed decisions. They may decide to vote infrequently because they're okay with what's going on, or they may decide to vote a lot um, because they're upset about what's going on. But we need to think about the kind of institutions that it, within which the government operates, rather than just saying, here's a law, you can't be corrupt, and we're going to prosecute it. I mean, I'm, not, I'm in favor of that kind of law, but I don't think that's what solves the problem. Yeah, a lot, and a lot of it depends on almost mores and what's accepted. So let's actually talk about that. Let's ha- let's all three of us. We'll sort of talk talk through it all. So um, it, it, let's start at the far end of the continuum. So I think we all three of us agree. Uh, all three of us agree that if, um, if <coughs> excuse me, if John Wallace, if you're a public official, and I if I, if I offer you a bribe, if I say, look, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you make sure I get this contract or something. Okay, so that's corrupt. I've corrupted you. I'm committing an illegal act. You're committing an illegal act, illegal act by taking the bribe and. and delivering on the quid pro quo. So so that we can all agree on. So let's go one step to the to the left or right and say let's look at campaign contributions, okay? So now I'm a big contractor and I say to I, and I'm going to give money to the John Wallace campaign. Um, now I would assume here a lot of it depends on what gets said up front uh, and um, and who says it first. So uh, let's try it, try it a few different ways. So I say John, I'm I'm prepared to make sure my company, you know, that we can bundle some stuff and we can do some dark money through super PACs and whatever. We'll make we'll, we're going to make sure that we help fund your campaign, but we do expect in return that you will be looking out for our interests up on Capitol Hill. Do, does I'm going to ask both of you, but I'll start with you, John. Is either one of us engaging in a, a corrupt act at that point? Well, I think. So now we've got two different things going on here. What's legal mm-hmm. and what, what the laws are. Yeah, let's and, throw that out for a second and just talk about more. Okay, so how let's we think about be, what, yeah. So, so I think um, I'm very ambivalent about that because if let's say I have a corporation or I have a business that comes together and represents uh, you know, automobile dealers in my, my state that want to do something. And then let's say I have an organization that represents um, domestic, domestic house workers. 
informs together. My son actually works for the uh, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. So they're trying to organize people that ha- are, are very difficult to organize. So when SEIU comes and says, you know, we got these voters, <laughs> and I can deliver you a thousand votes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and, and when the car dealers come and say, hey, I'll get you some money for your campaign, and that's how we'll mobilize the votes. Mm-hmm. That's in part how democracy works. So where you know how do we want to draw the line? Then we'll actually turn back to what we can do with the law. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm you know I don't I don't think there's a moral clarity <laughs> in these issues. Um, and partly because I tend to associate things I want with good and things I don't want with bad, which is of course a flip problem for everybody in our society because we don't all have the same notions of what good and bad outcomes in the political system would be. Um, Noah, do you agree, first of all, that votes and money are the same thing? I mean, in other words, if SEIU says, yeah, I'll give you a thousand votes, but, you know, come the session, uh, I certainly want to have your ear on certain issues um, as opposed to I'll give you $100,000. Is that the same transaction? So I was going to jump in there and say I think one of the things about not being an economist is that I haven't had to think as much about the relationship between money and other parts of life. It does seem to me, coming from my perspective, that that's a distinction we would want to make, that we might want to distinguish between representation of of interest and representation of people. Although big flag there, which is just that we're talking in our hypothetical right now about giving money to an individual campaign. And there are a whole bunch of political scientists and a whole school of political theory that was really important in the United States in the 50s that I think a lot of people still subscribe to that, in fact, democracy is nothing other than the contest of different interest groups. And so money is one of the ways to represent those interest groups can actually contribute to sussing out the general interest by mediating those conflicts. And that's some of the vision behind the idea of making stronger parties. So if the money was going to, say, the party as opposed to the individual campaign, you can see how you might have a different argument there. But look, coming at things from my perspective as as Noah Rosenblum, just some dude, yeah, absolutely. I think I would want to see a way to distinguish between money and people and find a way to try to let individuals be the ones who make themselves known to Congress. And it's really worth pointing out that that is pretty far from that's, – that's really an updated version of – some of those Republican political norms, right? 18th century Republican political norms. I think it's John Jay who quips at some point something like, those who own the country should get to govern it. And that's definitely a vision of democracy that I think you know, I and, and a lot of other people no longer totally subscribe to. No, although, I mean, I think there are probably people who do subscribe to it, and ideally they don't feel like they should ever have to say it out loud or in a way that will be quoted back to them. Uh, let's take a quick break here. I mean, I'm just I'm managing the clock. We have so much we want to talk about. We'll be back after this. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our friends at HSBC Banking, who flew us to Zurich for a special symposium. Swell, guys! Our interns are Adam Blood and Sydney Loro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Rowland. For show pages, articles, and grainy videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff having lunch with Jack Abramoff, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, new advances in Alzheimer's treatment and prevention. And now, back to Colin. We're back, and we're heading down the home stretch with our corruption show. There's so much stuff that I want to talk about that we won't all get to. With us, uh, John Joseph Wallace, professor of economics at the University of Maryland, and Noah Rosenblum, who is both just a dude and also articles editor at the Yale Law Journal. Uh, so, um, 
you know, so John Wallace, I, I want to come back to this, uh, the example that I was giving and, and sort of ask you um, a different kind of question about it. So one thing that we know is that, uh, let's go back to the sort of campaign contribution model. Uh, one thing we know is that if I go to you, a public official or one of your representatives, and say, I'm prepared to deliver quite a bit of campaign money into the Wallace campaign coffers, um, but I represent certain interests, and we really need to see House Bill 965 die. That bill's got to die. And if we can agree that that bill's going to die, I can put quite a bit of money uh, into into your campaign coffers. We know that's illegal, and in fact, you can get prosecuted. You can go to prison for that. Uh, that's really quid pro quo, and you can't do that. So, But it could be argued that the best corrupt system, the best systematically corrupt system, from best from the point of view of the people who want it to be that way, is the one where you never have to say that, right? Where the, the money flows and everybody understands <laughs> what everybody's implicit obligations are. So House Bill 965 is going to get killed without anybody ever having to say that. And, and to me, that's almost worse, right? Like, you know, if, if legislators are so bought and paid for that they don't even have to be approached about specific projects, it's harder to catch them, and it's kind of worse. React to that. Um, when I was in graduate school, I studied the New Deal. And so I, I read about the New Deal relief programs. These are the first national government programs that gave money to help people who were unemployed. And the first one passes in 1933 when there's 25% of the labor force is unemployed. So what I did is I read every version of every bill that the Senate and House passed from like 1928 to 1939. And I was amazed at how many, how many bills there had been there that looked very, very similar to the bill that was passed in 1933. I thought, why didn't they pass this under Hoover? What was going on? And of course, what I couldn't see was the thing you just talked about. Well, what are the legislators doing? What are they talking to each other? What do they know about? And in fact, people are making speeches all over the place. And then all of a sudden, at one point, it looks like the bill's going to pass and everybody lines up. Mm. Now, was that corruption? <laughs> well, no. It was because until the bill was going to pass, people took different positions based on the fact that the bill might never, ever come to the floor or never, ever be voted on. But when they knew the bill was going to pass because they can count votes without having to have everybody show hands, then everybody's behavior changed. So the behavior in a in a legislature, like you say, well, everybody knows this bill is not going to pass, so there's no discussion about it. it. That's that could be true because they know the fix is in and that enough people have been taken care of. It could also be the fact that they know this bill just doesn't have a chance of passing. Yeah, no, I'm because it's, you know I'm saying and, more that I don't have to make the specific I the 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 corporate interest. I don't have to make the specific request to any legislators to kill this bill. Legislators already know what they're supposed to do. They know what I want. And, and so I don't ever have to say it. I and mean, so it never gets picked up on a wire. Nobody ever goes to prison. But the effect yep. is the same. The bill I want killed gets killed because, I, you know, we don't have to discuss everything. Um, so the cure for that, yeah. and, I mean, and, I, and, I, and I'm very, really serious about this, is that that's how all of us want the government to work. I really wish that my senators and representatives, in fact, all the senators and representatives, would do what I want them to do, hmm. you know, yeah, and so I, you know, but Noah, and, and, Noah, as just a dude, would say, yes, but it's really, really different if you have four or five million dollars on the table to get that result, as opposed to Noah, just a dude who also wishes the government would want to do, would do what he wants them to do, but Noah doesn't want to have to give them all that money. He doesn't have it anyway. He's a law student. No, I know. So, given the fact that we live in a world where people are going to have four or five million dollars, it's 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 inevitable that we, people are going to have organized power wealth resources, how do we set up a system 
to not prevent that from happening because that's the, and this is the venal corruption problem. Human nature is what it is. We are never going to elect a legislature which will not pay attention to people with $5 million in their pocket or the people who are willing to fill up the brown bag in the example. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do we set forces against one another such that when people come to Congress, Congress can actually balance some of these forces and hopefully, you know, pursue things that uh, promote the common good? Um, Noah, are you buying all of that? Um, I mean, is is that is it enough just to want that? Um, politicians who are responsive somehow. I, I think it's definitely a great first step, and I, I totally agree with Professor Wallace that there's no getting around it. I, I do think we can make some of the attractions of those four or five million dollars less in certain contexts, and I think that's what a lot of the um, best of the progressive advocacy around certain elements of campaign finance are pushing for whether it's things like matching or even, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of a terrible thing to think that the solution to money in politics is something like more money in politics. But that's, right. maybe that's the best way to go. You know, you think about the, 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 the fact that co- donations to parties were just raised to try to make parties stronger institutions against individual outside donors, right? Or, um, or the, the whole idea of a public financed campaign is that, find a different source for the money. Um, in, I, I'm thinking about New York State, where it seems like there's certainly we've heard a lot more about corruption at the state level than at the city level. And, you know, there may be a lot of different reasons for that, but city councilors are paid a lot better than state councilors are. And certainly outside of the United States and even in the United States, historically, um, when you don't have uh, enough money to live on from other sources and you have access to the public coffers, you're going to take advantage of that. So, you know, maybe those are some other steps that we could try to make to make the appeal of money less. Although, uh, not to sound like a defeatist here, um, but um, I have to say here in Connecticut, I mean, your friend Lawrence Lessig uh, is always citing Connecticut where there's a citizen's election program as the place where they kind of fixed it or did something really important. And I can tell you, having just lived through this campaign, <laughs> that what happened was the dark money just came in anyway. You know, it came in from other sources. So the, all the politicians get these big public taxpayer funded grants, which I initially thought was a great idea. And then the, they if they wanted to, if they chose to and if they were influential enough, they got tons of dark. It wasn't like. They arrived in office not owing anybody anything, which is kind of, as an idealist, what I want. It's just that, no, they got, they got money you know, through the, through the grant program, and then they got money from the other people who presumably now think they can control them. So I hate to monopolize the last word, but we're kind of out of time here, and all I have time really to do is thank everybody, especially Deirdre Daly, U.S. State's uh, Attorney for the District of Connecticut. Go, go, Anti-Corruption Task Force. Noah Rosenblum, Ph.D. student at Columbia and law student at Yale Law School, where he's articles editor at the Yale Law Journal, and John Joseph Wallace, professor of economics at the University of Maryland. Thanks to all of you for being on the show today. And uh, give me an email if you have more to say at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. The conversation about corruption will not end. Hey, Dad, I've been meaning to talk to you. I'm considering a career in organized crime. Government or private sector? Private, like you. In fact, here's 10 grand for you to introduce me to your boss and another five Gs to push my bedtime back to midnight. I'm so proud of you, kid. I love you, Dad.